0: Before we jump into this episode, a quick reminder that everything said on Bell Curve is a meme and nothing said on Bell Curve is financial advice. Enjoy the app. All right, all right. Gonna be talking about MEV. MEV. Miles, wanna give us a little synopsis of uh today's episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So very hot topic. Um, along with the general app chain thesis, is is MEV. Um, but I think the two the two concepts are very interconnected because something we've teased a little bit um, on other episodes. But you know, the ability to capture more value from MEV or the ability for applications to recapture some of the MEV that they generate is one of the big tailwinds of this app chain thesis, um, and so. Yeah, today we'll be speaking to to some folks across many different parts of the MEV value chain who operate in general purpose blockchains as well as app chains um, to get their perspective on on where things are heading and and how this how MEV plays into the app chain thesis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, without any further ado, let's just let's just hop right into it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Uh, I'm joined as always by my co-host Miles, and we've got Nitesh, Magnus, and Xavier on to join us uh, to talk about MEV. Welcome, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, Yeah. Excited. Um, so we've got a round robin of uh, folks on the call today, um, and we're going to be going really deep in the subject of MEV in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, maybe just to just to kick it off, uh, could each of you do a super quick round of, we can just do a super quick round of intros. If you could just give 30 seconds on who you are and kind of where you are in the MEV space. And maybe I'll just call it Nitesh on you since you're first on my screen, then we can go sure. clockwise.
2: Perfect. Yeah. So um, I'm the founder of Dflow. It is a protocol for order flow markets. So basically we're building infrastructure that allows order flow from various sources to trade at sort of a supply demand market price. Um, and then also build some infrastructure around things like best execution
3: and uh, reputation tracking of market makers.
0: Excellent. Magnus, you wanna go next?
3: Sure. Uh, Magnus. I'm a co-founder of uh, Skip Protocol, uh, or skip.money. Uh, we build MEV solutions for Cosmos app chains. Um, our thesis is around sovereign MEVs, so basically providing app chain developers and validators the tools to construct uh, their own MEV markets and customize them
4: to sort of best serve their application. Yeah, and uh, I'm Zave, so I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Chorus One. So I've been now at Chorus for two years and Chorus One uh, is one of the largest global node operators in the world, uh, i.e. A, a validator. So yeah, I, we do a lot of work looking into MEV, how it impacts the node operating space, and Chorus One is quite often at the forefront of some of these topics in staking. So we, we were quite early with liquid staking a few years ago. And uh, yeah, we actually released a sort of white paper about Solana MEV last week. So we're always sort of in the weeds and what impacts validators. So yeah, glad to represent the, the node operating side in the podcast today.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So um, just to kind of kick it off here, I think to, to frame this this episode for listeners, I think we really want to be getting into sort of the nitty gritty differences of the approaches to MEV in the app space sort of environment, as opposed to the generalized layer one sort of environment. Um, but before we do that, with a subject as complicated as MEV and a little esoteric, if you're not kind of directly involved with yourself, I think it's good uh, to just sort of set the scene for viewers, like, what is sort of like the the MEV value chain, so, so to speak, or who are all the major players or actors that are involved in in MEV? And Xavier, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Maybe I could kind of kick it over to you. Can you just kind of explain who are sort of the, the key stakeholders, right? When we talk about
4: MEV? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Meg and Natesh can chip in here if I've got any parts wrong, because it's not as religious for me as it once was. But so, in terms of the chain itself, so a validator like Chorus One, we'd be at the sort of very end. So, a validator is the one proposing the block at the end, and everything that happens sort of before the block in, in terms of like ordering of transactions and everything that goes in the block itself uh in the in the recent past has been sort of modularized in a sense so in ethereum right now they tried sort of separating the difference between the proposer like asset chorus one versus like the builder the one who's inserting the transactions and building the block to be proposed to chorus or to a validator um but it goes you know even before that you sort of have a searcher sorry i'm working backwards because i'm a validator so it might be a bit confusing for people But yeah, so before the builder, you have searches. So quite often, these are sort of people looking for arbitrage opportunities. And then before that, you might have something like a broker, for example, which in this case, in sort of the decentralized finance world might be like a wallet. And then before the wallet, you have a sort of user creating the transactions. And what's sort of interesting, which we might touch upon in this podcast is, you know, MEV is a topic and the value chain of MEV is quite well studied in Ethereum the last two or three years. And it's the value at stake in Ethereum and the value that sort of impacts users is, is quite great. Of course, one sort of released some research that as much as like 60% of MEV in Ethereum right now is from front running. Whereas in Cosmos, for example, the users aren't so impacted at the moment because volumes are a bit smaller. But uh, yeah, I'm sure Meg and Natesh can touch a bit more on sort of their specific role and the different types of actors in, in that MEV value chain in the Cosmos.
2: Yeah, I can, I can jump back. So I thought that was pretty spot on. Um, Maybe the only thing worth adding there is just that uh, a lot of this does depend on like the ecosystem that you're a part of. So, you know, the value chain is is slightly different on Ethereum versus Cosmos versus Solana. Um, And, you know, new ecosystems are popping up too. So, Uh, but high level, I think that's, you know, spot on.
3: Yeah. One thing I, w- I would add too, um, though I thought that was, that was pretty accurate, is that like value chains are, seem to be very correlated to power dynamics. So like ultimately, for example, in Ethereum, um, proposers or validators have sort of like the ultimate power over the ordering of blocks. And so necessarily they're paid all the money, right? Um, whereas like in other ecosystems, there does seem to be a difference in power dynamics, right? So when you, when you come to an app chain world, I think because like the app chain is really built for a specific application, the dev team right takes a much more active role, and the community takes a much more active role, sort of in the direction of the chain, and therefore that's like sort of disrupted the supply chain in some interesting ways that we've been experiencing and being you know has affected our product roadmap significantly. Um, so like for example in Cosmos we've seen for example delegators. Um, choosing or, or validators choosing to give more of their money back to delegators uh, versus in Ethereum where it's a no-brainer, you just you just take it all, right? Um, so there's a big difference there.
4: Maybe just one thing to add <clears throat> from anyone sort of listening from this from an Ethereum perspective. So one major difference in Cosmos, especially in app chains and Cosmos versus Ethereum is that, you know, in Cosmos it's delegated proof of stake. So at the end of the day, a lot of these delegators are users themselves and they'll sort of vote with their stake in a sense. So it's a much more complex topic in the Cosmos um, compared to Ethereum where it's there's not so much delegation. So even if you think of Lido, you put one Ethereum in and you get staked ETH, but this is going distributed evenly to all the validators behind that and you don't really get to choose who your sort of validator is, so it's less important. In the Cosmos, as a validator like Chorus 1, MEV is a huge topic for us because it can actually be a way to differentiate and try to capture more stake in a network and earn, you know, voting power from delegators. So, you know, what Mag just mentioned before, what's really interesting, and in fact, now Chorus works quite often with Skip through some of these problems is how different is this in a delegated proof of stake system versus like a pure proof of stake system like Ethereum, where there's a cap and there's not so much delegation and state doesn't move as much. It's not as free. So, yeah. That's a uh, quite a big difference in that ecosystem as well.
1: No, that's great. And I think, you know, we're talking about MEV here because it can be an application's best friend or worst enemy, uh, depending on how it's treated, right? Um, think about the issues that the economics of MEV can cause is around, you know, potential risks of network centralization with a few validators really owning all the MEV and getting all of the network stake. Um, and then there's the user side in terms of you know users that are getting front run by searchers or sandwiched, right? So we have you know this public mempool, which allows this to happen. Um, and you know the two of those things can can really stymie the entire space, I think. So that's why all these these solutions that you know folks like yourselves are building have have popped up and and are really interesting. Um, and so, Maybe just to talk about what like the perfect world solution would be. Um, I think about it covering three main objectives that it's solving for. Um, it is protecting, you know, mitigating the risk of net- network centralization. Number one, um, it would protect users from you know harmful MEV like front running or, or sandwiching. And third, it would actually allow the applications that generate the MEV. To capture that value um, and determine, you know, internally how that value should be distributed, and so maybe to get into some of the solutions that are being built right now, and thinking about, you know, which of those three uh, or all three they solve for. Um, you no, know, I kind of bucket it into off-chain solutions, uh, on-chain solutions, and, and order flow solutions. Um, So maybe I'll kick it to you, Mac. Could you speak to, you know, kind of some of the off-chain and on-chain solutions that you're working on at at Skip?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, So first of all, I I sort of agree with with those three framing, right? So like reducing centralization, obviously important in decentralized networks, Um, and then also sort of giving chains the ability to express. And then I would say like as part of that, giving chains the ability to differentiate by saying okay, this is a domain where you don't have front running, right? So like, Osmosis founded, or was founded sort of as the MEV-resistant DEX. So to give them a solution that gets, that makes other users front run is probably not going to be in the best interest of them or their users and would be fought against. Um, so like, we, we support two solutions, right? So one is um, an off-chain builder, we call this skip select. Uh, It's basically an implementation of of a Flashbots-like builder that has a lot more preference expression. So meaning the chain can choose sort of, you know, minimums and maximums in terms of payment. The chain can choose to disable front running and sandwiching by sort of, we do that on the ingress side by looking at uh, transaction signing. Uh, And then chains can also sort of, you know, basically choose, you know, how much of the validator set can adopts it and, you know, validators can sort of make their own decisions about these things. The other side of what we've been building, um, which we so far have only launched on osmosis is a fully on chain builder. Um, So this actually relates to a lot of the research that's been done by course one in terms of having sort of like side by side builders that sit next to the validator, that basically build its own block, I just lost uh, a light, okay, back. so basically what that means is, uh, you know, that the protocol itself will try, attempt to capture MEV. This is basically like impossible in Ethereum, right? Because you have like generalized transactions. It's like there's so many forms of MEV, whereas on a place like Osmosis, like what do you have? Swaps, right? And like that's the only thing you really have. And swaps are very backrunnable, right? Like they're very, it's very easy to understand how to backrun them. And so when we observed that all the MEV on Osmosis was essentially back running, we were like, why can't we just build this like into the chain? Um, I think an interesting design space for us at Skip and where we're moving next is like, how does that generalize? Like, how do you have the properties of an in-protocol builder or an on-chain builder that generalizes to something like auctions um, so you can like allow for a searcher ecosystem to uh, also participate?
1: That's that's great, and that would actually you know the benefits of that is that it leaves the control with the application itself, right? Um, and the application can be ultra opinionated on what type of MEV it allows and and how that you know value is distributed. Um, maybe I'll, I'll kick it to Natasha. You you're taking a slightly different angle at this with building, I would say, more of an order flow like solution, right? Um, and your your primary Customers are not chains like like Mag, uh, but actually wallets and, and and other sort of you know uh, applications that basically any app that is not its own execution environment like a like a Dex. Um, so I'd love to just kind of hear your angle at at solving for MEV and and which of the you know dream solution you know one through three it it, it is solving for.
2: Yeah, um, I think. You know it's it's difficult to look at this problem and and try to come up with solutions without uh, I guess trying to identify um, who the users are that are generating this MeV at the end of the day um, generally this falls into two buckets like retail and and non retail so institutional and and that can sort of include you know prop trading firms or just anyone who's um, sort of you know a, a sophisticated model building type uh, you know swapper or uh, transaction sender, um, and so that that's sort of where we're, we've started. That's that's one thing we've we've looked at uh, when we've you know began designing how we approach this problem is identifying who the users are, and then um, with that backdrop, we have uh, really posi- positioned ourselves um, sort of at the application layer rather than the validator layer. So I think a lot of MEV type applications. Uh, operate really close to the validator layer. And we we like to insert ourselves as close to the um, entities that are actually generating these transactions. And so that ends up being wallets. Um, with that backdrop, basically, of one being able to identify who is sending the transaction, and two, uh, it, like operating close to the app application layer, uh, we we get some you know really I think attractive benefits in terms of the design space. One of those is that we're able to now provide really strong guarantees about MEV to the users who are generating that those transactions that cause MEV. And in particular, uh, with retail traders, which is sort of where we specialize, we want to build this infrastructure to be best for retail, um, we're able to do stuff like give them 100% of atomic MEV uh, for, for swapping. Immediately, without it ever, without the transaction ever touching a validator, um, and this is sort of a really powerful paradigm that I think flips flips a lot of this, you know, uh, flips a lot of the question upside down. Um, and then sort of that second segment, which is sort of institutional prop, you know, style uh, MEV that gets generated, which it does get generated if you're if you're you know a quant trading firm and you're trading on a decentralized exchange, you're still generating MEV, but we don't care about that because. Uh, and when I say "we, I mean the dflow protocol because um, you're sophisticated you you know how to set up validator nodes yourself. You know how to send transactions in a way which protects your interest. It's just that for that other group retail, uh, we've basically designed our systems to protect them as much as possible
1: oh that's that's really interesting. and you know I think you are you're definitely coming in it from the 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 wallet level, which makes the solution a little bit more generalizable, to, you know, to any sort of blockchain architecture. Um, but we've seen, you know, when you're building at the validator level um, or other parts of the chain, you know, the architecture of of the chain really does make a difference in terms of what you can do. Um, and so, maybe I'll, I'll kick it to, to Zave. You know, on on Solana, if this is a general purpose chain, um, and typically the only solutions we've seen on general purpose chains have been uh, you know off chain uh, PBS solutions right um, but I thought it was a really interesting piece that the course one published I think it was last week about potentially moving some of this you know to the actual validators themselves on Solana um, so I'd love if you could kind of give a perspective there about you know maybe this doesn't maybe these general purpose chains are not limited to just, you know, off-chain solutions or something like a wallet-based solution like like Deflow. Um, and yeah, I would love to love to hear a little bit more about that.
4: Yeah, no, thanks for bringing it up. So yeah, at Chorus, we were sort of researching this for the last 12 months and also maybe for the listeners who might not be familiar. So Solana is a chain where, of course, there's very, very low fees. Um, and then as a result, uh, especially arbitrage is really spam the network when there might be an opportunity available for them. And there's... At the time, you know, Flashbots, well, Gito created a sort of version of Flashbots in Solana. But the way MEV works in general is so on Ethereum, it's quite even. You have sort of validators now and searchers or builders, and it's quite 50 50. So maybe the validator takes half of the revenue that the searcher would take if there's an opportunity there. In Solana, it's really the other way around, where it's more that a searcher will take almost 100% of an arbitrage opportunity. Because uh, there's very little competition. There's something like less than a thousand bots or something like that. And also they're very low fees. So a validator in Solana will capture very minimal. And at the time, Solana had an ecosystem of quite a lot of volume, which is also something that we might be able to talk about today, like the volume in Cosmos. So the volume in Solana was there, but validators were taking nothing. And I guess at the time, you know, we were quite big in Solana. I think we were, we were the number one node, maybe, or something like that. And we sort of assumed that MEV would become quite a hot topic in Solana. And uh, yeah, we decided to research this and sort of build, uh, it's sort of like what Skip has, where it's like in sort of network MEV for osmosis, but we just decided to do this actually in the validator itself. So essentially when it's our time to propose a block, we have these algorithms already sort of pre-created and generated, and it will search for opportunities, just really simple arbitrage opportunities on, you know, Radium or some of these Solana decentralized exchanges I think a really important point here though is that, so we actually open sourced this and we published the white paper and you can feel free to check it out on the Chorus One website, it's called Breaking Bots. Um, But an interesting point here is that, you know, in terms of an app chain versus like Solana, which is general purpose. So one thing we talk a lot about at Chorus is sort of searching and, and building sort of a bit as well, especially when it comes to app specific chains. So, an app specific change, you have a lot less opportunities, as in everyone sort of knows it's just arbitrage or something that exists on Osmosis, for example. So, in a sense, the actual searching is a bit of a commodity because even like, you know, someone at Chorus who's a researcher could do it themselves. So, if you're looking at Solana or Ethereum, as general purpose, which means there's a lot more long tail MEV. And by this, I mean, you know, it's not just arbitrage transactions and you're trying to capture extra value by back-running or front running. There might be some NFT mint you know, going live on some day, which is huge, and then you sort of want to get your transactions in first or mint all of them before everyone else and then resell on the secondary market or something like that. So these are quite clever long-tail strategies that exist on Ethereum at Solana, whereas versus an app chain like Osmosis, which Skip is on right now, uh, you know, it's it's quite uh, well known the types of strategies that you can use to capture the MEV. So I think it's a really interesting topic, I guess, when it comes to sort of MEV and where the value lies. So we heard from Atesh that it's, you know, maybe it's at the very start between like users and brokers, for example, which I think is actually super interesting in general. And then you have someone like Skip, which is a slightly uh, more well-known model, which is sort of but also new in a sense, because they're sort of capturing it for Osmosis itself. So Osmosis, the you know, Cosmos decentralized app chain specific came out and said that they don't really want bad types of MEV and they don't really want searches. They didn't, they didn't want malicious MEV in the network, which is quite a bold statement for a network to take. And so they partnered up with Skip and Skip's done an amazing job sort of neutralizing the MEV almost where it just captures the most obvious MEV and distributes this back to stakers. And then validators and Skip have a sort of cool option where they can choose the commission on MEV being taken by Skip sort of. And this is a way someone like Chorus can differentiate But, you know, sometimes we might run into sort of questions, open questions that we have as a node operator, because if you think as a validator, we're at the very, very end of the sort of value chain in MEV. And so for us, you could argue that validators like searching in some networks as well could also be a commodity. So a question that we always have, any validator will have this question is how do we differentiate? And clearly, a way Mm. to differentiate can be through MEV. Why? Because if you distribute back more MEV to your delegators, you're giving them more yield, you're earning more delegations, you're getting more stake. There can be arguments for like, is, is this a centralizing factor? So I am personally on the fence of like, I think it's really hard to neutralize the sort of centralizing force at any stage of the supply chain. So if you take it away from validators, it's going to move on down. If you take it away from builders, it's going to move on down. If you take it away from brokers, it's going to move on down. So also recently I've seen quite a lot of solutions that are focused on actually returning MEV back to the users, not just sort of so they pay no fees, like maybe a deflow or some sort of payment for order flow protocol might have, but actually probably like they will earn revenues from like sort of creating MEV. So I guess what I'm saying here is that I personally think this whole space is really early. You know, funnily enough, you, you might argue that like, you know, someone like deflow, someone like skip someone like chorus is sort of, you know, push and pull with Who's capturing the MEV and where it's going and who can do what and yeah it's it's super early but it's, I think it's one thing about Cosmos as well like just in general and you know you have a Cosmos Maxi in the podcast so I hope no one minds if I show Cosmos a bit but you know one nice thing about Cosmos is that infrastructure it's really easy to build infrastructure in the Cosmos which like fundamentally MEV can be a security issue on any network so I think you're seeing a lot more experimentation and innovation at this sort of infrastructure layer um, in MEV and Cosmos. So what you're not seeing is volume. Volume is really poor compared to Ethereum. And now we're also talking at Chorus about sort of, you know, there's a lot of building going on in MEV and Cosmos, but now it's about sort of how can we get the volume there? Because you sort of, in a sense, you have to attract some of these searches to your network. And right now, a lot of them is in Ethereum. So a question I'm sure Skip and also, you know, flow and maybe some others are sort of asking like, where does this value come from and how can we sort of bring them in? So, you know, I might just quickly mention as well, there's another MEV sort of protocol in the Cosmos not represented in this uh, in this podcast called uh, Fairblock, which is sort of focused on, you know, mitigating front running in the Cosmos. So then the question there is like, I'm a big personal fan of this solution for this problem. But then the question is, is this the actual problem in the, in the Cosmos right now? Because there's a lot more flexibility because Skip might already be removing a lot of the front running. So, But then you have something like DYDX, which you also haven't talked about yet, which maybe we might talk about in a second. So DYDX is a network, of course, a lot of volume on Ethereum. This could completely change the game in the cosmos. Then the question there is, who's going to capture that MEV? And, you know, the order books there are in the validator. So is it the validator that has the control here? Or is, you know, does someone like Skip come in and... Uh, you know, maybe they offer to capture it, sort of in protocol, and distribute it back to stakes in DYDX. So it's really unique how every network will take a different approach, and super interesting as well because you're sort of always on your toes about not knowing what to do next. And that's why we're frequently in conversations with each other about this topic.
1: That's great. Um, yeah, I could not agree more with those points. I mean, I think just how it, it, app chains are interesting because the design space is. For MEV is somewhat limited, right? To the application itself, you um, don't have thousands of apps creating all this huge long tail of opportunities, and so you know you can internalize some of the MEV that that is generated. Maybe Mag quickly just to would love for you to share a little bit about what the the rev module is on Osmosis um, that will be going live soon. And and to me, I think the big difference is that you know. You are not at the mercy of the validators trying to differentiate, um, you know, through through kicking this back to their to their delegators. This revenue is actually going to be controlled by the DAO, who can you know let it accumulate in their treasury. They can distribute some to stakers. Um, and to me, I feel like this is a this is a big differentiation because it makes this more of a you know a viable business model for apps. Um, and so maybe before going any further, would you? Just give a quick overview of what the ProtoRev does um, and and how it will benefit Osmosis.
3: Sure, but also uh, I am in favor of validator differentiation, um, and so uh, ProtoRev wasn't designed to remove that by any means. So, yeah. So so basically, what ProtoRev is is an in protocol backrunner, right? So similar to what Jay was talking about, like it it be, because all you have on Osmosis are swaps it has the ability in protocol to uh, detect sort of like what the price changes by any individual swap would be and then to cyclically back run it right afterwards. So we launched this this thing called satellite.skip.money where you can sort of like see over time also shout out course one has a great MEV bot on osmosis you should follow but it it basically records the amount of cyclical arbitrage both do Um, and we realized it was quite substantial like seven million dollars you know since osmosis started. Um, and so basically what it does is it you know, monitors every single transaction and then at the execution stage, right, when it's going through the actual processing of the state transitions, it looks and says, oh, wow, Like this would move these pool prices this way. Let's arbitrage it back, right? And it does that per every single transaction. So um, it doesn't insert it as new transactions. It actually happens in the processing of a single transaction. So every single swap you ever do in Osmosis going forward will have like perfectly balanced pools by the end of it, um, so there won't be arbitrage opportunity afterwards. Or maybe there's will be a little bit because we'll miss it, but for the most part, there won't be. Hmm. Um, I think it's it's worth noting though that uh, this solution doesn't um, this solution is is somewhat dependent upon already existing inefficiencies, right? So like when you think about the routing of osmosis, right? When you think about sort of how like wh- why there even is a backrunning opportunity, you could argue, and this is sort of in favor of a deflow like solution, that there should be matching or there should be like built in back running at the, or- the you know, front end level so that it wouldn't make it to like the actual, um, so like the execution wouldn't create it sort of when it got to the execution stage. I think that's eventually sort of like where we wanna start collaborating and thinking about going forward. Because so far, what we have really focused on is okay. Searchers were getting all this revenue. It wasn't even a question of validators getting it or you know um, users getting it. Searchers are getting all of it. How can we distribute it back to the network since like the network really can do it themselves? And then how do we make that like a governance-driven process where, of course, validators have a say. So I expect validators will receive some compensation for it, but then also you know users and individual delegators. Um, but I think like a big a big focus going forward uh, is really starting to think about the order flow side of MEV in Cosmos and what that looks like.
0: I, I want to maybe just uh, kind of bookend this part of the conversation before we before we move on, but uh, and, and give listeners like one sort of takeaway right for a difference in between like an approach to MEV in like kind of from the ETH framework or mindset, and then from kind of like the full stack app chain mindset. And Magnus, I kind of heard you say something that stuck out to me at the beginning of this episode, which is, you know, wherever value sort of accrues in the MEV value chain on Ethereum land, it's kind of based on market forces, right? Um, and then there'll be some kind of leverage and push-pull between that different value chain. But the, one of the differences in like a full stack uh, app chain sort of environment is you it's a little bit... to to borrow a phrase actually from Miles, is you can have more of an opinion on it, right? And there's kind of a more holistic approach for how do we kind of give some of this MEV back? Do we have an opinion on what sorts of MEV are good MEV and what sorts of MEV are bad? Is that like a relatively okay generalization to make?
3: I think so, yeah. I think it's like a big part of it is also what Dave said, right? Where it's like validators are, first of all, public and a lot more beholden to their delegators in Cosmos, right? There's only Mm. 150 slots, so if you fuck up, right, or you do something that like is evil, then you're going to lose your delegation and it's going to go fast. So I think there's generally a sense of like, okay, um, you know, the chain founders are saying this is good for the protocol. Like, why would I go against that? Right. Um, and and sort of like users are saying they want this, like, why would I go against that? Um, hmm. so I think there's like, there's definitely more voices at the table versus how I think it is in Ethereum, where there's. I think it's just a a different set of power dynamics. So
0: so then I I guess I'd like to get maybe just open question to to everyone on the call here, but in in sort of the the perfect solution that Miles laid out, right, where you mitigate risk of centralization, uh, protect users against harmful types of MEV, and then kind of the third one being allowing the application to capture some of the value that's generated from MEV, how would you prioritize? So let's just say you can't have all three of those things, how do you think those are going to get prioritized? <laughs> Zave, you look like you got an answer. I'm right, calling you, man.
4: I, uh, I'm not sure I've got an answer because I think there's, there's no answer yet. And it might sound cliche, but it's quite interesting because first of all, it was a very tough question. Which one out of the three you want to prioritize the most? But if you look at Ethereum right now, you can already argue that one of them they're deprioritizing and that's front running. Like I mentioned earlier in this episode, You know, some ridiculous amount of capital is being taken, quote unquote, from sort of users with no retribution for sort of what they've done or anything like that. So I think networks like Cosmos, for example, clearly this is a major prioritization, especially for Osmosis, which I'm pretty sure right now is the biggest X. You know, they've come out and said that we don't want bad MEV and so they want to avoid front running. You know, and they also want to sort of reduce centralization. You can sort of reduce um, centralization in a sense because if validators struggle to differentiate, let's say, it's a bit harder to say like stake with Chorus. Okay, you can differentiate with governance and stuff like that as well. Um, But in a sense, potentially it makes the validator game more even. Because, you know, say Chorus 1 is a more advanced validator, we might be able to capture more stake and you might be able to argue this is bad for centralization. So osmosis here is sort of prioritizing, you know, decentralization and also bad MEV. And also in a sense, it's capturing itself. So I would say they're doing all three. When it comes to like Uniswap or something like that on Ethereum, they're not prioritizing, you know, removing front running because that's just not a thing for them right now. You know, in terms of the actual sort of centralization or decentralization of it, you can't really even compare to Osmosis here, for example, because they're not a chain yet, which I'm pretty sure they will be at some stage. But that's another question in the topic. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think it's it's hard, and it's like I think another way of thinking about it is it's not just those three things. It's also about how can you keep every actor in the chain happy, almost, because someone's gonna like be kicking and screaming if they're not getting enough. And I think that's the beauty of MEV right now because there's always going to be someone kicking and screaming somewhere. And it's interesting because I could sort of imagine potentially in the future, like maybe even one network goes, we want to use deflow and skip. Like that's so cool and also pretty crazy. And you'd never be able to do that on Ethereum, for example. You're sort of restricted to something like just flashbots. You know, maybe it's like a fair block and a deflow and a skip. And there's like five different MEV solutions. And you're like plugging and playing. And then it goes, hell modular. And then, you know, then it's like, you know, then it's a party. So, yeah, I think right now it's sort of, about preferences of the network, especially in the Cosmos. And Skip, like I think here as well, does a really good job at it's sort of like a product in a way where they're going out to these networks and asking them, you know, what are your needs and what do you prioritize? Instead of Skip saying like, we prioritize this or even Deflow, for example, saying we prioritize this, you know, it's going out to DYDX or Osmosis and saying like, what's important for you and how can I build around that? There's a question maybe there of does that scale? this is a great question and problem to have. And if you can sort of solve this, I think this is a yeah great sort of possibility and potential opportunity for who can do that in the cosmos.
3: One quick thing just to add to that is like, I really, so just like to dive into one of the points that you said today, which is like, I do think there's going to be two markets, right? There's going to be a market for block space and then there's going to be a market for order flow, right? And I think like those markets are not, like in my mind, they're not necessarily superior, right? It's like there's going to be markets for, you know, tenants and there's going to be a market for apartments for them to live in, right? And there's going to have people representing both saying, well, I need, my tenants need this, this, and this. And then people say, well, my apartments are going to require this, this, and this. And I think there's going to be auctions and ways of sort of obtaining both. So if you're a searcher, you're going to need the flow, right, to actually back run. And then you're also going to need to land it on the chain. so like for on both ways, I think you're gonna have to participate in both auctions. And so I'm very excited about order flow solutions coming to Cosmos. I think I think they're a big missing piece.
2: Um, <clears throat> to, add, to add one thing, I think MAG is pretty spot on. Like the right way to think about this is to separate these two, um, you know, high level markets out into their own distinct things as, as you try to reason about them. Um, and one of the reasons I think that's like so important is because something that, pretty much no one really talks too much about in crypto when it comes to this question of like, what are, you know, what are the priorities among those three things is, um, what actually leads to true institutional crypto adoption. And I think right now, the number one thing that leads to that is, uh, fair infrastructure for liquidity providers. Um, I think, you know, Liquidity providers, market makers are providing a service to the community, and that service is providing liquidity, you know, 24 seven, obviously, they're collecting a spread. And if they're, you know, a good market maker, they collect more of a spread, but they are providing a service. And in a situation where they have to compete with other um, takers, such as searchers that have like handshake under the deal, uh, under the table deals with validators, it is impossible for a market maker to profitably make markets and provide that service to the community. So until we get to a point where um, you know, market makers are able to make markets fairly without getting you know, uh, run over because they don't have some sort of under the table deal, we're not gonna see true inst- institutional crypto adoption. And so I think uh, back to Max's point, which is once we're able to separate these two things out, order flow markets and block space markets, we're able to create, I think, more efficient Infrastructure for both parties, uh, you know, both market participants in these two types of markets. So that that's what I'm kind of most stoked about in 2023.
1: Well, that's um, really really interesting, especially hitting on the the separation there because I think you know no one's really attempted this so far, um, and so it's hard to kind of visualize what it would what it would feel like for a user at the app level. Um, but maybe just to transition a little bit here. You know, the whole season we've been talking about a spectrum of, of app chains or app spaces, um, going from full stack app chains on one end of the spectrum, you know, Ethereum L3s uh, that, you know, settle to a common L2 on uh, the other end of the spectrum, and something like sovereign rollups um, built on Celestia falling somewhere in the middle. And there's a lot of different flavors there. And so, you know, I think we've, we've talked about. Today, we've just general purpose L1s and full stack app chains. Um, but in you know this future that we see is uh, Ethereum and, and Cosmos on somewhat of a collision course. In that Ethereum apps on Ethereum will be wanting their own you know app specific or sector specific rollups. Um, and so, I would love to get into kind of what. What the MEV space looks like uh, for the rollups, um, you know, right now we there's pretty much no MEV because every all these rollups are run by a single sequencer, right? Um, and so, would love to hear. Maybe I'll kick it to Mag because I know you've been working with the Celestia team a little bit. Um, would love to hear what sort of solutions you are thinking about for rollups in particular. Um, whether these are you know coming from shared sequencer networks um, and just you know how trying to start to tease out just how opinionated, say, a roll up can be about how it treats um, uh, MEV versus a full stack app chain versus, you know, an app built on a a general purpose L1. Um, So yeah, I'll kick it to you, Mac.
3: Sure. I I can take a shot, but I mean, full disclosure, um, this field, I would say, is is very early. Um, So... I mean, if you think about roll-ups on a, on a shared DA, right, which I guess you can also put all the L2s and Ethereum in the same categories and say, you know, use Ethereum for their DA. Uh, th- there's a question which is sort of like, when do you post the data, right? Like, like what, ha- like, can you coordinate somehow between the different rollups so that you could say, uh, like have cross-chain atomicity rules so that like when you actually have the posting stage, Could you sort of combine that together and give traders down at the rollup level um, some kind of increased preference expression over doing that? Um, One design that invite anyone watching this to to take a look at is Evan Forbes' shared sequencer model. So in this model, basically you have a set of nodes that does sequencing that sit on top of a bunch of rollups, and then they all post their transactions. um, And the shared sequencer is in charge of basically ordering each one while also sort of extracting MeV and you know even doing like cross domain extraction between them. I think when it when it comes to like the sovereignty question, uh, we, we come to this like idea of like fork choice rules, right? So this is the concept that basically like a rollup can decide to selectively choose forks based off of some set of preferences, right? So like let's say, let's say you had 20 sequencers for a specific rollup, and then they all posted, um, a state route, and then they returned back and they all, and they each individually said, okay, the, this is the state that we individually think should be next. The rollup can say, okay, well, that one's based off of front running. That one's based off of sandwiching. And that one I know is good because like, they're from, let's say, a trusted sequencer that you know follows the rules that I want to. So I'm going to choose that one. And all of you guys just paid for data, but you're, we're not going to include you on chain. So I think there, in sovereign rollups, you still have the the opportunity, sort of, to have rollups make decisions via fork choice rules <clears throat> about where they where they want to you know how they want to sequence their transactions. I think this space, though, is is very early.
1: Right. Right. And so it does feel like the value capture there is still at you know away from the application uh, and or app specific rollup and more you know happening at the actual uh, shared sequencer uh network level um and i think it just will depend on you know how competitive these networks of shared sequencers are because then you know they will actually have to offer you know maybe more of that value flowing back to the roll-up side um yeah so maybe i'll I'll kick it to zave Uh, could you speak to a little bit about you know what the role of the sequencer is here um and and how it differs from you know the validator side and if that's something that you guys are exploring at Chorus 1 or not?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. So I have a sort of opinion here on what it could look like in the future, which I think is potentially not thought of so much right now. And it's somewhat related to the work that Chorus has already done on this sort of invalidator MEV. So I've spoken with a few execution layers in the past who have been sort of interested in potentially utilizing let's say like a validator that takes all the arbitrage itself which in this case the validator is just the sequencer so you have like the layer 2 you know here and then you know you have a sequencer here and the sequencer posts everything back to the to the layer 1 and quite often in ethereum right now there's just one sequencer and theoretically it's actually okay to just have one sequencer you know it's it just censorship resistance is a problem here because you know you sort of it's somewhat Relying on them actually doing the right thing even though if they do the wrong thing you can always prove it but it's better to like right now it's a topic in general of do you even decentralize these sequences so even for us at Chorus like we're not even running any layer twos right now so it's so early that we're not even running the layer twos let alone think of thinking of like MEV here but I think what you could start seeing is this sort of idea of let's say there's one sequencer And the sequence let's say it's an app specific layer two and it's just an app like osmosis has a layer two on ethereum just theoretically so we all know the opportunities skip knows all the opportunities so in the sequencer itself almost you could just have like working with skip sequencer is there they take all the opportunities and then x percent goes back to token holders you know and this is actually what token holders want and then maybe skip takes a cut and maybe the sequencer takes a cut. so it's like 10 10 80 split so realistically, what a lot of these applications want is a split of, they just want to return some value back to token holders. And I know on Ethereum right now, this is a massive question. In fact, I feel like every week I'm getting pinged a bit more about like, oh, you've, you, this is happening in Cosmos or Solana. Like, how can we implement this uh, in Ethereum? So they're becoming a bit more experimental. Um, but I, I don't think in this really layer two MEB space, it's going to be the same as like just a pure builder or something like that. I think if you're just going to have one sequencer right now, then, you know, I think it makes sense, especially if it's app specific The problem space is less, as I mentioned before. So you know the opportunities, put it in the sequencer. Then there's a question of like, okay, how do you create this deal? And is this deal off chain of like the X percent split going to token holders versus validators versus someone like Skip who's doing the sort of building itself? This is another question. Perhaps it's like Osmosis where it's like a DAO vote or something like that. But I do think a major difference here and Mag sort of mentioned it before and we haven't mentioned it that much in this podcast is like the community of the Cosmos is different to the Ethereum community, for example. So if you want to implement a strategy in Cosmos of like 10%, 10%, 80%, you take that to the community and you're going to have a political fight for like a week or two about if you should be 10% or 5% or 1% or whatever. You're just going to be on the forums like all day or night. In Ethereum, I feel like a lot of it is sort of not under the table but it's not as obvious so if there's a protocol app specific layer 2 you know they want to introduce x percent fees no one's going to really discuss that that much or protest against it let's say so i what i guess i'm saying here is that in ethereum you have a bit more leeway i think to implement new solutions without pushback from the community because they just want value to their token a lot of ethereum token holders and layer twos in cosmos it's like it's this ethos of like we really want you know, many, many chains and, you know, the community has a loud voice and then validators have to listen to their delegators, as we mentioned at the start as well, because delegator proof estate. So it's it's harder to sort of manage all the parties there, I guess is what I'm saying. So it's it's super early, it's sort of confusing response. But I do think one takeaway here is that it'll look a lot different in Ethereum versus Cosmos. And it's like when Celestia is out and layer are sort of arrive in Cosmos this year.
1: Uh, I think that that totally makes sense, and it's it's pretty easy to you know get excited about some of these solutions when you can you know part of the the benefits is that all of this value that was being captured by only one party is now being you know recaptured by the application right, and and then sent to users. Um, maybe for Natasha, because you are taking a different angle here, um, could you speak to I guess. Some of the benefits that users will see, even if they have no idea that they are sending an order flow, you know, through through Deflow, um, and and what the value prop is there for for wallets um, on behalf of their users.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest value prop is that these wallets who want to provide a good user experience for their users and also uh, monetize without necessarily you know slapping fees onto the order flow. Uh, the benefit there is that. They have a really simple um, mental model for how they how they should think about um, order flow monetization with DFlow, because we uh, abstract away the actual infrastructure where transactions go and settle um, to us, any blockchain is identical because we have isolated common properties of each one and just interface with that interface that we define. So uh for, for wallets, that's probably the best benefit. Obviously, this system is, you know, it has a trade-off, which is that we can only um reason about a certain transaction type. It just so happens to be that the transaction type that we reason about and that we specialize is market orders from retail traders, which is also like you know, ninety nine percent of all transactions that have MEB. So I think we we solve the problem. We we don't aim to be a general purpose solution, but we are. Specializing on a class, which is pretty much the entire category, um, and so for wallets, it's you know it becomes really simple with a solution like DFlow.
1: That's, that's great, um, and I think you know we've we've touched on it a, a couple times here, um, but if we are moving to this app-specific world, um, you know app-specific chain world, either app-specific rollups or you know these sovereign rollups or full-stack app chains. Um, there's going to be a need for for these cross chain uh, MEV solutions, um, and so we've you know we've learned a little bit about uh, what Flashbots is building with Suave um, and some similar ideas have been introduced on the Cosmos side first in the Atom 2.0 paper with the interchain scheduler. Um, but yeah, I would I would love to kick it to Mag again here to talk about you know what is the purpose of something like a cross chain you know. Priority block space marketplace. Uh, what are some of the use cases that can be solved for for the applications that you know cannot be solved with these intra chain uh, solutions and and kind of teasing out, I guess, where this side of the space is going.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so, so uh, cross chain MEV is very complex. I think it's like something that you know is is easy to understand. You know conceptually but when it comes down to actual implementation uh quickly becomes almost seemingly impossible at least on cosmos where you have like a bunch of separate l1s that don't have any um communication uh like baseline except for asynchronicity so basically there's no way to coordinate like okay you you do that and then i'll do this like you can't say that right atomically Whereas in some place like, you know, interchain or let's say on Ethereum, you have that kind of composability. You can say, do this, then this, then this. Otherwise, don't do any of it at all. Right. Um, And that's what we call like atomicity. And it's it's as simple as like a transaction in Cosmos. You can have multiple messages. Right. One might be a swap. One might be a flash loan. Um, And so you have that natively, which enables a lot of this MEV that looks like arbitrage. Right. So if you don't have that, right, uh, like how do you, how do you even start to reason about like MEV? So like the simple answer is, okay, I can keep a lot of money here and a lot of money here. And then, sorry about that. um, I can basically arbitrage between them by taking swaps on either side, right? Uh, Another way I think you can think about it is you can sort of like um, go more of like this suave and then don't want to butcher flow, but I, th- I think they're thinking about it this way, which is like some sort of general cross-chain market making, right? Where you can like aggregate the order flow and then give it to market makers and then they can do the cross-chain MEV in a way that's actually good for the ecosystem, like arbitrage in a good way. Um, I'd say so like in terms of solutions that I've seen for cross-chain MEV that like potentially really would work, the scheduler is one, but it's quite a bulky solution because you have to like you have to buy the right to be the proposer in multiple different chains over a synchronous period of time. So it's like, what if I just want one transaction? Like, Why do I have to buy the right to build everything? Um, and then also sort of like uh, the, these preference matching uh, solutions. So like Suave, um, I think the shared sequencer, and then you know anything that sort of deals with like cross chain order flow. Um, I would say like <clears throat> one other thing to note is that I think generally, most cross domain mev is not really between chains it's mostly between decentralized exchanges and binance or centralized exchanges and i think like one thing that we've discovered over time coming in very excited about cross chain mev is like wow this is not really happening because the price the price discovery is all happening on the deepest liquidity pool of them all which is the centralized exchange and so i think in the short run, the, the, the way these play out in my mind is there's going to be a lot of sort of like sex to decks, uh, arbitrage tools versus sort of like decks to decks, given sort of the complexity of that, as well as the fact that it's just not where prices are being discovered. Right. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say that much.
0: I, I don't know if anyone has any uh, response to that, but I, I want to um, kind of conclude actually with with sort of a discussion of um, even within sort of the cause. So I, I want to talk a little bit, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in MEV around kind of uh, like, they've like, got a lot of really great points from kind of the validator perspective uh, on this call, but I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the role of, of middleware and maybe specifically wallets. Um, so like one, you know, one sort of metaphor or idea that we've sort of drawn on kind of time and time again throughout this series, this idea of like the proximity to the user is ultimately uh, extremely, extremely important in terms of leverage, right, over an entire value chain. And if the ultimate like kind of capture or lock in for the user ends up being at the wallet, the wallet layer, you could see them having an enormous amount of uh, control when it comes to MEV and maybe even dictating right what makes good MeV versus bad MeV which is kind of an interesting philosophical discussion in and of itself uh, so maybe Natash you kind of call on you like I mean is there a kind of some future state right where there's like a wallet super app right which ends up having like an enormous amount of uh, sort of control uh, I'd just love to get your your sort of thoughts on that
2: yeah um, th- there is definitely a future state where you know Maybe a single wallet or a handful of wallets have so much uh, user activity that they sort of dictate e- ecosystems, and it's it's a really dangerous path for crypto um, because of that power you know yielded to some centralized group of people that operate these wallets, um, and I think really the only solution to this is creating. Uh, economic incentives that basically prioritize the decentralization of order flow over the centralized distribution of order flow, um, which is, I mean, coincident in in the name of deflow, that's kind of what we try to do is decentral create economic structures that decentralize order flow. Um, but but really, this is this is quite a big problem, and um, you know, creating these economic incentives is is definitely, I think you know, the number one priority of infrastructure projects in, in crypto, or at least it should be. Um ha- happy to talk about how I see that playing out, but um wanted to pass it on to anyone else who has thoughts as well.
0: Yeah, I would I would love to get uh everyone's thoughts because even to maybe just compound a test on what you're saying for like how this might be able to play out, it's like One of the dynamics that's made this so difficult in in Web2 to kind of point at, you know, kind of our Web2 giants and say, hey, what you're doing is anti-competitive or not good is because they keep doing things that are ostensibly good for the customer, right? Like if you take a look at like one of the super apps being like Amazon, right? They do things that are very good for the consumer, right? Like you can return anything on Amazon with you know, for, for a while you could do this, right? No pictures, no anything, but who's getting squeezed on the other side of that is kind of their network of, of vendors, right? That have these really strenuous sorts of terms and they're exerting their their enormous leverage kind of down the, the chain. And you could see a, a similar dynamic there happening with, with MEVs. So I don't know, Mag or Zave, if, if either of you guys have, have thoughts on this, um, or if you just want to close with like a philosophical discussion of like what is good MEV versus bad MEV. I'm sure you guys both have thought about that quite a bit.
4: Maybe just before we move on to that topic, I just have a quick point on on the wallet side. And it's sort of mm. when you think about the chain here again. So you know at the start it was miners and they were capturing all the MEV. Then you know then the builders and searchers came in. They were, they were capturing the majority of MEV. And then now it's like pushing down again and maybe it's like the wallets that end up being the ones that are centralizing force and they're capturing the mev and it's like at what stage of the chain or what new like at somewhere it's going to get clogged up i guess so i, I do really like flow solution and actually i was going to mention as well back to mag's point before on this like cross-domain mev so here potentially is like where even a flow or something like that could integrate like cross chains maybe and like maybe this is sort of the way Like and that's how it works in Cosmos and maybe Skip specializes in just like a chain by chain sort of basis and they sort of work together. So yeah, again here, I think just super early and really interesting. And then maybe to close on the good versus bad MEV, I think, you know, the fact is Cosmos is about choice and, you know, all networks have the choice and sovereignty to choose if they want bad MEV or good MEV or if it's a topic at all. And this is the beauty of the the Cosmos in general.
2: Um. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, sorry, I was just going to make a quick point on what Michael and Dave just said, which is I, I think it's really important to note that um, in, in this future state where these wallets have been yielded so much power, it, it's important to understand with you know the Amazon comment that what they're doing is not an effort of trying to be nefarious. It's an effort of trying to give their users the best experience. Uh, it just so happens that Right now, the way things exist today, the best experience for users is to under the table sell their order flow to some centralized thing, which will guarantee like great execution, but is also a centralizing force. Um, so I, I think, yeah, that that's maybe one of, one of the big things that we're trying to work on is just how do we get you know something that's better for users UX than uh, like a really you know tight knit but Ultimately, centralizing under-the-table deal with yeah. some quant market maker or something like that.
1: Just, that sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. Uh,
0: that that specific example is a really interesting one, by the way, because even if that, let's let's just give Amazon the benefit of the doubt and say the reason they do that is to protect the interests of their their users, their customers, it ends up kind of very indirectly not being good for customers, though, because what ends up happening is in this like uh, terms of service, right? If you're a merchant that signs up with Amazon the price that you sell on Amazon cannot be different from the price that you quote anywhere else. And the, what the retailers say is, well, I don't want to give up 30% of my margin. You know, Sometimes that's more than their entire margin. So what they do is they just mark everything up so that they can sell on Amazon. And they had the same margin as before, but now they're selling on Amazon. So basically what you've just done is you marked up the entire Internet, And then even though these users think that they're getting a deal, actually, nobody's getting a deal and it's just more expensive everywhere. <laughs> so just like, it's a funny example of how, even if, even if they are doing this, uh, supposedly for the right reasons, you kind of still end up screwing people too. So it's just an interesting.
2: Point. Yeah. In, in the but, context, uh, sorry, I'll go, I'll let Mag, you know, make his point because I interrupted him. But uh, the last thing I'll say there is, uh, in, in this point about like, you know, um, I guess to tie it back to MEV and, and crypto uh, and not, you know, sway too much to the Amazon part of it. Um, really the important part here is to allow market makers to provide liquidity efficiently. And and that's that's ultimately the driver that will make sure that none of these centralizing forces are able to accumulate and, and snowball into something that's pretty terrible.
3: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say it's sort of, you know. My philosophy on these things is sort of like three three big things that sort of go through my, my mind these days. One is we don't really know what the right solution is. Like We're all trying to figure it out and presenting sort of different ways of structuring the market. And ultimately, I don't think, I think the worst thing we can do is be like, this is the way, right? Like, or PBS is the way or, you know, Suave is the way or, or, or you know, Skip is the way, whatever it is. Like, I, I think making sure that there's chance for exploration of, about how these markets work um, is, is really important at this stage and sort of not stifling that, you know, innovation. Um, I think the second thing is there's like a, a, there's also like a legal conversation around a lot of this stuff, right. That I, I don't think we got into here, but like, you know, we recently talked to a lawyer and they're like, you might become a money transmitter, right. Or flashbots might be a money transmitter. Like validators might be, I don't know, Zay, what are they saying? You might be
4: something scary. Fortunately not. We try to avoid those types okay. of conversations.
3: <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, Well, anyway, there's like, there there is some, you know, there is some conversation about how these things work. And, you know, a, a, a far version of this might be that users are required to be given best execution, right? Which is how it works in traditional financial markets and everybody sort of works around, um, you know, works around that sort of baseline. And then I think the third thing is like, I think MEV's history is not yet written in terms of how it relates to user experience. I actually think the most interesting things I've seen in MEV is how it affects like the basic user in terms of using their chain. There's like a good article written about this that I invite everyone to take a look at by Presswitch um, about like MEV wallet or sort of like using MEV to like put yourself up to the top. But I think what we're going to see is like a, a an explosion of um, sort of like understanding like the 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 connection between sort of the user experience, whether that's refunds or free transactions or whatever else it is, or you know atomicity or prioritization, and then also MeV, sort of how those things fit, um, which I'm very excited to sort of like see a lot of solutions for.
2: I want to make a quick point here before we get too entrenched in this though, um, which is on sort of the regulatory thing that Mag was talking about in terms of best execution. It it is a very crypto thing for us to basically discuss like, you know, uh, redistribution of MEV in in a sense where a percentage of the atomic MEV goes to someone who is not the retail trader. Like the analogy in traditional equities markets would be Citadel, Citadel, Keeps you know gives you terrible execution and keeps some of that spread uh, against the best market price and it is in my opinion obviously not a lawyer but incredibly unlikely that when the SEC comes to look at MEV and how these swaps are getting executed that they'll be like okay cool you know eighty percent goes back to the user no they're gonna you know hand on table slam (laughs) slam their fist down and say a hundred percent needs to go back to retail. So yeah, that's, it's going to, it's super weird. Crypto is crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the, uh, maybe the conclusion is Gary is coming for us all. So we best all be careful. Um, Guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Guys, this has been a a super fun hour. You've given Miles and I uh, a lot to digest um, from this conversation. If folks want to find out more about each of you, follow you on Twitter, follow your projects uh, and keep up with the good work that you're doing. uh, What's the best way to do that for all of you? I'm not going to call it. Whoever's feeling bravest here, uh, You get call, call it out.
2: Okay, I'll, I'll kick off. Uh, dflow.net is our website and at dflowprotocol is our Twitter. Uh, you can also follow me at, at uh, Natasha Nath is my name and uh, usually post MEV type stuff there too.
4: Yeah, and no, I'm 0XAVE uh, I'm on Twitter and Chorus1. Chorus.1 is the website and the Twitter is just Chorus1 with uh, no spaces or anything in between no dots?
3: Uh, I'm at OX Magmar, um, used to be a Pokemon streamer, so that's, that, that's from <laughs> leftover days. Uh, and then the company is at skip protocol and our site is skip.money.
0: Wow, that's awesome, Mag. We need we definitely needed a couple of minutes to uh, to <laughs> dig into that, but uh, we'll, we'll save that for the next time we do a pod together. Um, Guys, it's been a super fun one. Uh, you've been super generous with your time, so thanks a lot. This was, uh, this was great. Thanks. thanks so All right, partner. Great podcast. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I thought, you know, it was great to have this conversation with folks across, you know, different parts of the MBV value chain. Um, mm. you know, we have Intesh, who's who's really building kind of for, for wallets. Um, and really focusing on on order flow and then you have skip that is building all sorts of block building software and solutions uh both on-chain solutions and off-chain solutions for app chains um then you of course one who is at the validator level and and participates you know actively across general purpose L1s app chains and so they can see the full spectrum of of approaches you know to MEV be, that are that are being pursued here and they can Have a, you know, a great perspective on kind of the trade offs that we're trying to tease out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the challenges of this discussion, you kind of kept hearing it from Magnus, is like, hey, we are venturing into new ground, uh, new territory yeah. here. Hey, we're breaking new ground. Like a lot of the, I mean, part of the reason it's exciting to be talking about this now is it's happening, but also necessarily there are a lot of the sort of big ideas that I think you and I want answered sort of still sit in the realm of conjecture. So just, yeah, just kind right. of bears mentioning, right? That this
1: stuff- No, no feels- it's-, it's- it's very similar to like a lot of our other conversations. We're talking about you know what sort of stacks work best, right? We've only seen the the Cosmos full stack, you know, in in action. We've only seen Ethereum and and you know Solana in action. Same with MEV. We've only seen really off chain PBS solutions in action at scale, um, and that happens on Ethereum and and Solana to some extent. Um, And we're only now beginning to see really what app chains, full stack app chains can do with, with say, you know, osmosis kind of leading the way in partnership with skip. Um, and there's still so much that, you know, has been, we spoke about today, but has not even, you know, development is in the first inning, right? Where much less, you know, there's no usage of it yet, even. Um, it's not, it's not, not developed. So.
0: I thought it was I thought it was pretty interesting to get Zave's perspective uh, as a validator, right? Talking about where value accrues, and he kind of did it uh, chronologically, which I've never heard it broken out. But like first, there were only miners, right? So all the value sort of accrued to them. Then there were the the searchers, and then the uh, the builders, kind of the relay, and uh, it, and so as and as each new kind of um, component cropped up, obviously there was less competition in the beginning, so an enormous amount of the rewards sort of uh, sort of flowed to them. Um, you know, it's just interesting to hear is almost like a whack-a-mole type description. Uh, and then obviously wallets haven't really had enormous amount of success yet, but there was a big question mark there. And I think everyone, uh, you know, when, once we posed that question, had done a lot of thinking about that. It, it also is interesting to hear him say that all the validators, you know, something they always ask is how can we differentiate? And cool. I have to, I actually have to, uh, not, not that this is necessarily the case, but it, it sort of rung a little PTSD bell for me coming from the world of consulting and, you know, a bunch of our (laughs) friends are in like investment banking. I'll tell you something that investment bankers all ask like, how do we differentiate? What's our value add? And usually, when you have to start asking like what the value add is, it's not quite as obvious. You know, right. not to say that uh, you know, course one is is phenomenal and like on the cutting edge yes. of all this stuff, but it was interesting certainly to hear that uh, that dynamic voice. Right,
1: right. I mean, it. it everybody, all, all validators are providing you know somewhat of a commoditized service in terms of securing the network and, and validating blocks, um, and so it's it's more about what else can you do for the network. Work that, that makes you more valuable for your delegates and will attract more delegates, right? Um, and I think part of what he said that was also interesting too is, is really just the difference in communities and, and what communities care about. Um, because I think you know, for app chains, you're just dealing with a, a smaller community right? that is only cared about, you know, really prioritizes their own application uh, and the user experience for that specific application. Um, and so they can be, you know, much more opinionated, uh, naturally more opinionated than, than say a general purpose chain that is trying to appease a community of thousands of apps and millions of users that all have different, you know, priorities, um, and interests. And so it's, there's the technical components of what is possible and not possible of, you know, with the, an app chain and a general purpose, um, a general purpose blockchain. But then there's also kind of the the social components of, of, you know, just how far an app chain is willing to go in order to exert, you know, control and influence over these questions versus how far the community that is trying to appease as many builders as possible will go. Um, right. Because as soon as they start prioritizing one application or one, you know, sector of applications, and they've got all the other parties and, and stakeholders, um, you know, start to get upset, and that that you know potentially leads them to move to their own environments, which decreases the value of all the MEV being generated on that on that general-purpose L1. Um, so, just MEV is so interesting because it does re- really intersect, you know, in between technical and social, um, and and there's you know a lot more to dig into here. But I thought that was interesting
0: yeah me too and you know i i think we're a little biased here i think because we had the perspective of three people who spend a lot of their time in, in the cosmos ecosystem obviously but it did sound like just the nature of the you know many different layer ones right uh kind of makes it a little bit more complicated especially when it comes to the this sort of cross chain mev domain right there's definitely like i think magnus said it best like in theory it sounds great right like when you're reading the atom 2.0 white paper you're like this oh yes huge value I totally see it this makes all the sense yeah. in the world but then when you get down in the weeds like ooh this is actually a very difficult you know boarding on impossible problem yeah right right
1: right and, but you know they're building at the forefront right it's this, this is we're we know what we're trying to solve for right in those objectives um, and we're trying to find solutions that solve for as many of those as possible um, yeah. and 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 unlock new use cases potentially as well.
0: Something that I wish we, we like got into it right at the end, but I would love to have gotten uh, more of their thoughts on, on, you know, this is less of a technical, but more of a philosophical discussion about like what constitutes good versus bad MEV. And usually when that subject gets brought up, people are like, Oh yeah, well, sandwich attacks and front running are bad and back running is good. But the reality is there's an enormous long tail, right? Of other forms of, of MEV that exist out there that much more fall in kind of like a nuanced, gray area. So I, I think I would have loved to get a little bit deeper into the weeds about like what constitutes good and bad MEV. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And and but it's also worth mentioning that, that that long tail um is really only of of material value on general purpose chains. Um because you know part of why you can have a solution that is so opinionated and customized for an app chain is because you know, there is a pretty narrow design space for MEV that's possible. Um, you know, we use osmosis as an example, but I'd say, you know, 90, 95% of, of MEV generated on osmosis is, you know, from potential back running or front running of swaps, right? It's a DEX um, versus, you know, Solana, which has a, an enormous long tail. Um, and so, you know, I think the difference there is from a practical standpoint is that, Osmosis can build things like the Protorev module that is basically a protocol owned ARB bot, right? That is, that is run on every validator and is capturing that, you know, lion's share of all MEV generated. Where, you know, if you were to try to build something like that on Solana, uh, there would be days and, and or blocks, right? Where it's looking for what it thinks is, you know, the most common forms of MEV. But it's leaving enormous amounts of value on the table because there's no way it can possibly, you know, cover all the different sorts of long tail opportunities. Um, and so, I think that's that's what I thought was interesting about course one course one's paper last week is that it it's implying that there should be kind of, you know, a marketplace of of searcher, you know, um, strategies uh, that that validators can pick up. Um, and then potentially kick back a revenue share to those searchers, um, and that would allow the validators to run some of these systems, you know, in protocol, but but also have be able to capture the longer tail of MEV and, and distribute it, you know, to the to the searchers that to generate it. Basically,
0: what did you think about Natasha's point at the end, where he's like, "It's all well and good, uh, you know, so that we can say, hey, like, we'll, we'll have horrible execution, but we're going to kick back like eighty percent of this to you know to users, and that'll be fine." And the SEC coming in saying, uh, hey, guys, we actually have uh, rules out there about best execution, You know, giving best execution to retail. And you can't just have bad execution and kick back 80 percent and call it a day. You know, what, what was your I know that's kind of a far off question, but like what was your sort of thought on that?
1: Yeah, um, no, I thought that I thought that was interesting. Along with his, his point around really, you know, how we're going to uh, there will be at some point a separation of MEV, you know, between. Uh, execution uh, auctions and block space auctions, because you know those two things can can f- potentially fill very different needs. Um, and I think you know it's unclear how this is all going to play out in terms of whether you know kicking back, say, you know eighty, you know, only letting the user capture eighty percent versus kicking back, you know, some sort of revenue share with with other um, providers. How whether or not that will fly or not. Um, but I do think that the, the point is that's really interesting is that, you know, you, by separating execution from, from block space auctions, um, you know, you could offer some, some pretty significant benefits to the users in terms of, you know, getting your, uh, uh sh- trades done basically immediately and guaranteed at the very best price. Um, and, and to me, you know, it raises some questions around, Okay, if that's all being controlled, basically at at the wallet level, you know, is there a way for apps to also, you know, see some of that, see some of that value as well? Maybe it's an app-specific wallet that, you know, becomes available long after account abstraction is implemented. Um, So folks, you know, users are not creating new seed phrase for every app-specific wallet they use, but um, it would, you know, potentially allow something like that, you know would present a different future than say five wallet providers or even smaller, fewer wallet providers really dominating the whole space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I mean, it's once you kind of have a, uh, what's that? there's a specific phrase for this bias, but like once you've seen a problem solved in a specific way, it's very hard to unbox yourself from that problem. And, you know, I, I have to, ima- I have to admit, I've been sort of red pilled on this, uh, you know, the, the, The analogy that Sonny gave us in the beginning of this series, which was um, how this sort of played out in Web two and the the power that apps at the at the very that that have close proximity to the consumer or the user, the amount like the natural tendency, the market force tendency for centralization, and you know when I think about it, my heart of hearts, I'm like okay, you know, they're like, what do I think is most likely to play out here, right? Like there might be these other solutions where apps want to control the the wallet, right? And there's a beautiful full stack sort of synchronous there. But in reality, like someone, right, is going to start a wallet that's like pretty good. They're going to be phenomenal at distribution and marketing. They're going to grow that baby. And that like, as soon as you have that like critical mass of users, which you can argue MetaBask is like close to having right now, but in the grand yeah. scheme of apps, there it's still very early days, very few users. And I just see that, that natural convenience being a huge factor, but I, you know, the little voice in the back of my head is saying that's a very kind of web two paradigm and who's to say it will play out like that
1: again. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's true. It's, and I think we, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, is the user relationship with the wallet or it was it with the, is it with the application? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's probably strong arguments with both, but I've, I, my my hunch is that it's more with the application uh, that that really has the brand and and has been you know the reason you're up you know a user of a blockchain application in the first place is to because they're providing some service that you want um, and, and the wallets just the middleman in between there um, but yeah I think it does it does definitely you know pose some big questions because um, even even something like DFL like uh, you know basically. An execution environment um is competitive with with a lot of these applications that we're talking about like dexes um and so maybe you know dexes become a thing of the past and and all of this is happened all of this is handled at the wallet level with these with these different you know order flow routing solutions um i think it's probably that's probably a little extreme um but yeah it's definitely definitely really interesting points raised that i hadn't hadn't thought about. Um, too much before before this conversation
0: and by the way um you know who do, it, it's kind of played out differently in uh, there are two different models right like there were there's a great uh paper from z prime capital that kind of used this the fappening example and the the uh, the what they're using as an analogy or inspiration is like kind of the super apps that exist in china right uh, but that that doesn't really uh, that doesn't really exist in the united states there are there are in like kind of uh there there are lots of different small apps, right? There are some big ones like Amazon is, is huge, but there's also, you know, you don't, there's not one interface where you call Uber and Airbnb and et cetera. You have a relationship with each one of those apps where in China, it'd be one super app that you do everything, everything from. So I, I don't think it's uh, destiny, right? That it plays out in one specific way. It's, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and maybe just for for the audience, the fappening refers to the flipping of, of, uh, <laughs> um, of value from the you know L one base layers to more value being accrued at the application layer. Dan, um, Miles, we, it
0: probably is good to provide that as a <laughs> disclaimer.
1: Yeah, so um, really,
0: we'll link it in well, the show notes. It's actually yeah, a great read. And,
1: and Yeah, exactly. It, it is. And, and what that gets into is these apps that, you know, start with one service and capture users and then eventually expand horizontally into into lots of different services so that the user basically has one inter- interface for anything they could want um, or maybe anything they could want within a certain sector. Um, and then the question is, you know, do they expand vertically up into the wallets? Do they expand down into their own, you know, app-specific roll-up or chain? Um you know, and what is the sequence of that? Because it does, you know, again, my hunch is that they will, you know, once you hit critical mass, you will want to expand, you know, one way or the other, um, in order to capture more value and offer an even more, you know, differentiated product experience for your users.
0: Yeah, you bet. All right, buddy. I think that's all the time we have here, but this was a fun one. We'll see you same time next week, partner. Sounds good.